Christian life, too great a sacrifice. Are you going to have to give up too much? Is that what some think as they contemplate Christianity and living the Christian life? Will I miss some things by being a Christian? Well, this morning, we are going to answer that in the affirmative. Indeed, you are definitely going to miss some things by being a Christian. But I think you may be surprised at some of the things that we will cite as the things that you'll miss by being a Christian. The first of which is you'll miss the cares of the world. If you're truly a Christian, you're going to miss the cares of the world. Jesus had a great deal to say about this subject. In the great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, despise the one, be loyal to the other, love the one, hate the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Jesus said, that's an impossibility to serve God and material things. In other words, there are some things that you're going to have to turn loose of, so to speak. You're going to have to leave behind. Because if you try to serve two, you'll hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't have it both ways. And so in becoming a Christian, you've got to choose the master that you are going to follow. And when you do, you leave your old master. Now, there are those who are still in the world who would obviously contend that they are not the servants of Satan by being in the world. But there is no other conclusion that one can reach. No matter how moral, no matter uh, what kind of neighbor an individual is, that individual, if he is not serving the master, is still serving another. Because Jesus said, again in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And so there is no neutrality. There is no in-between state into which a person may place himself that is pleasing to God or to Christ. Because it is, as we have often said, an all-or-nothing situation. But in making that choice, And truly understanding that choice to become a follower of Christ, one of the things you're going to leave behind is the cares of the world. That's not a negative thing at all, is it? That's quite positive. Let go of the cares of the world. What did Jesus say in the verse that follows verse 24? After saying you cannot serve two masters, you'll hate the one, love the other, etc., he then says, therefore, because... This is true. Because this is the case, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. In other words, if you have made the choice to serve God and Christ, then therefore don't worry about your life, as the New King James renders it. Don't be anxious for your life. Then he goes on to specifically talk about what he has in mind here, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body what you will put on. And then he asked the question, is not the life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? There is so much more to life than the material things. And if you have chosen to serve the master, then a mindset has, has kicked in, if you will. That is a totally different mindset. And it's a mindset that will cause you to miss something. 
that I doubt very seriously you'll be unhappy about missing, and that is the cares of the world. He goes on to illustrate it with the birds of the air. Look at them. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so which of you, he goes on to ask, can worry? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? And here's his next illustration. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Here's the point. Verse 30, now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Here it is again. Therefore, because of all of this, because of these things that are so true, these illustrations that are pertinent, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And here's a very sobering point. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. What's the contrast? The contrast is between those who've chosen to live the Christian life and those who've not yet chosen to live the Christian life. They're still seeking those things. They haven't undergone that change of mind. They are seeking those things. We are not seeking those things in the sense that we are not overly concerned. Concerned enough to provide? Why, of course. Of course, that goes without saying that we're to be good stewards, that we're to provide for our families. But his point here is worry, as the New King James renders it, or anxiety, as the King James speaks of it. These are the things that characterize, these are the emotions that characterize those who've not yet made the choice to serve the master. They may be those who have thought they've made the choice to serve the master, but they're basically torn still between the things of the world and the things of the next world, and they haven't fully let go of the cares of the world. Is there any consequence involved in failing to let go, as we should, of the cares of the world? Or is it simply a neither here nor there process? We can either do it or not. We can still be uh, faithful children of God, even though we are filled with anxiety. Is that the case? Is there no danger at all in uh, still being overly concerned or consumed at worst with the cares of the world? Well, what did Jesus say about it in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13? In Matthew chapter 13, he makes it abundantly clear as he explains the different types of soil into which the seed fell. In giving the explanation of that parable, he talks about he who received seed among the thorns. Remember that thorny ground? Verse 22, now he who received seed among the thorns is he who what? Here's the word and what? And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Any danger in not letting go of the things we need to let go of in becoming Christians? Oh yes, very serious danger. He hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, do what to the word? Choke the word. What the Lord says is there's something you miss by being a Christian that if you don't miss it, you've missed it. <laughs> in another very real sense. Because Christianity is to be a life of joy and peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, 
Not a life that does not have its challenges or difficulties, as Brother J.C. mentioned in his beautiful prayer. Obviously, we have those difficulties. We have those challenges. And we must deal with those. But there is also an undergirding, even through those difficulties, of that joy in the Lord, about which Paul writes so abundantly in the Philippian letter particularly, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding that those who have truly understood the importance of making that complete transformation, they have and the world does not have. There's so much in the New Testament about this vitally important theme of the change of mindset and the change of emphasis. First Peter 2, verse 11. What does Peter write there? I beg you, brethren. He says, I beg you as what? Sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Who is it that's going to be better equipped to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul? Those who are, as Peter prefaces his writing sojourners and pilgrims. In other words, if you never lose sight of the fact that you are a sojourner and a pilgrim here, this world is not your home. Peter says don't ever lose sight of that. Recognize that you're a sojourner and a pilgrim. Is there nothing about this life then that you can enjoy, that you can appreciate, that you can cherish? Of course, there are many things. Many things, many people, many relationships, but you dare not allow the cherishing of those relationships or those things to in any way cause you to become worrisome or anxious and to lose sight of where your real home is and where your citizenship is, as another writer, Paul, reminds us in another place. And what does that same writer, Paul, tell us in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Again, speaking of begging, as Peter begs you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust, to the Roman Christians, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech, there it is, I beg you therefore, I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present, the word present is in a tense that means lay it on the line once and for all. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he adds, and this is what the Lord is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, and do not be conformed to this world. That's equivalent to what Jesus said about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather what? Be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. When does that renewing of the mind occur? It should occur when we leave the things behind of this world and realize that we're headed toward the next world because we've become Christians and we'll miss the cares of the world and we won't mind that one bit. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the idea of being transformed there is an ongoing process. You just keep on being transformed. And you become less like this world and more like the next world the longer you're privileged to live in this world. And enjoy the things that can be enjoyed without harm in this world, but do not allow them to cloud your vision of the next world to which you are going as a child of God. But how does this world judge success? 
I remember many years ago, back in the 80s, the old Bertine Faulkner marriage uh, uh, film strips, they had a section in there that uh, I kind of latched on to because I thought it, I thought it had uh, some good uh, analogies in it about how the world judges success. I just remember that, that one thing, and I've used it and talked about it years, for years since that time. How does the world judge success? That was the question that was answered. And they asked, and the answer was money, intelligence, beauty, and athleticism. Money, intelligence, beauty, and athleticism. M-I-B-A. MIBA. That's not a word, is it? <laughs> but it might help you to remember it. M-I-B-A. M-I-B-A. Money, intelligence, beauty, athleticism. And that pretty well sums it up, doesn't it? Pretty well sums it up. Money. Money. The more money a person has, then the more successful he is or she is. That's how the world judges success, at least in one area. But what are the answers? That's what I remember the passages that were given that answer those points. What about money? What does the Lord's word have to say about that? Is there an answer to the money as a standard of success? How about 1 Timothy 6, verse 17? Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. There's your answer to money as the standard of success. Charge those, command those who are rich not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches. Passage does not condemn being rich. doesn't condemn making money. It condemns being haughty about what you've done in making money and also about trusting in the money you have made because those riches are uncertain. What about intelligence? Intelligence, oh, education is at a premium. Those who are highly educated, those who have uh, various advanced degrees, they are the ones who are, uh, are uh, looked up to as being uh, truly those who are in uh, authority and who are successful and who have accomplished a great deal in their lives. And there's nothing wrong with education per se, unless it allows us to uh, be educated out of our, our faith, which it has done, tragically, to untold numbers, I do not doubt. What does the Bible have to say about intelligence as being the standard for judging success? What about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. That's how God's Word answers intelligence as the standard of success. What about beauty? What about beauty? I remember marriage retreat, we were using some things from children. The children had said about various things about love and marriage and one about beauty. And one of the ones, some seven or eight-year-old or whatever, had said, if you want someone to love you outside of your family, it's not a bad idea to be beautiful. <laughs> well, a little child, not a bad idea to be beautiful if you want someone outside of your family. That says in your family, it doesn't matter what you look like, they're going to love you anyway. <laughs> but if you want uh, someone outside your family to love you, be beautiful. Well, that may indicate that 
That's what uh, little children on up to adulthood think many times. That beauty is an outward situation. What about Isaiah 53? There's the answer to beauty as the standard for success. Isaiah 53 and verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's the prophecy about the Christ. No form or comeliness. Nothing about him physically in terms of his appearance that would cause us to desire him. No, not at all. Beauty. That's not the biblical standard for success. But what about athleticism? Athleticism. Oh boy, I tell you, uh, these athletes are looked up to by so many people, aren't they? Idolized by so many. If they, can, uh, if they can slam dunk a basketball time and time again and they have all of these abilities or uh, catch a football in an amazing way, uh, all of this, oh, they are looked up to. What does the Bible have to say in answer to that standard? Remember 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8? For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Bodily exercise is profitable for a little. That is literally the idea here is for a little time. Not saying that we shouldn't take care of our our bodies, we should, and we should uh, keep our bodies as healthy as we can, to live as long as we can in order to serve God for as long as we can. But bodily exercise is, is transitory. It's going to last for a little while. Godliness, listen to that, is profitable for all things, having the promise of what? The life that now is and of that which is to come. It's doubly beneficial. Bodily exercise is not going to help us in eternity. But godliness will help us here and now and here after. And you know, that reminds us that really the child of God has the best of both worlds. The true child of God has the best of both worlds. Another passage that reminds us of that is John 10. 10. Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Life now more abundantly. Part of that abundant living is that when you make the change and become a child of God and understand that transition that has taken place, taken place, that transformation, you're going to miss something by being a Christian. Yes, you're going to miss the cares of the world if you truly understand and apply Christianity. Second thing you're going to miss by being a Christian is something I don't think you'll mind either. You're going to miss the fear of death. You're going to completely miss the fear of death by truly becoming a child of God. What is it that man perhaps fears, generally speaking, more than anything else in life? Death. Death. <coughs> The unknown, the dread of it, uh, what is out there, etc. There's nothing out there according to some. Therefore, they're going to cease to exist. They want to live as long as possible and fear that moment when they, when they die for the child of God. 
you'll miss that. How do I know? Well, because the writer of Hebrews tells us so in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to what he writes in verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children, there we are, have partaken of flesh and blood, we're flesh and blood beings, aren't we? Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise shared in the same. He became flesh and blood and dwelt among us, John writes in John 1. He himself shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What does that tell you if you're a Christian? You've been released. You have been released through redemption. The release from the fear of death that held men in bondage, the bondage of what? Fear has been relieved by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the passage says. And if I don't feel that relief, then I need to re-examine some things, namely this passage and many others that tell me I have nothing to fear in death if I'm a faithful child of the king. Because of his redemptive work, he has partaken of flesh and blood and died the cruel death on Calvary and has been raised from the dead to release me as a follower of his, to release me from what? The fear of death. Now notice something back in verse 14. He himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who what? Verse doesn't say destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. The verse says destroy him who had, past tense, the power of death. If Christ hadn't come, Satan would still have the power of death, wouldn't he? Because we'd be in our sins. But he has come, and so it's past tense. The one who had the power of death no longer has it because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And so I don't have to fear death any longer. What is death anyway? Separation. Separation of the spirit and the body. That's literally what death is. But the Christian views that separation with anticipation, not with anxiety. The Christian views that separation with anticipation, not anxiety. Now, does that mean that, that you want to leave this world right now? Well, not necessarily, because obviously if you're thinking straight as a Christian, you also want to be a servant for as long as you can. You want to grow for as long as you can. You want to be of uh, the greatest service you can be. And nothing wrong with wanting to be with your family and your loved ones for as long as you can. But as you think of that time when you'll no longer be with them, how do you feel about that? Fearful or hopeful? You can read in Luke 16, and we've studied the passage before, in Luke 16, 19 beginning, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And in verse 22, the rich man, uh, Lazarus died, uh, the rich man died, but the Lazarus died and was what? Carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That's another way of expressing 
the paradise of God. The bosom of Abraham is the paradise of God. Now, Lazarus was one who was laid at the gate of the rich man day in and day out, his body racked with pain, full of sores, had nothing this world had to offer, but he did have riches because he was obviously a follower of God. Otherwise, when verse 22 says that when he died, he couldn't have been carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, but he was. Can you think about that transition into the paradise of God with a heavenly escort from the angels and be fearful about that? Why should you? Why should you anticipate that with anything but hope? Why fear? Brother Mike Vestal, one of the speakers at the marriage retreat these last few days, gave an illustration that's very appropriate here. He said where he preached, there was a couple diagnosed within a few days of each other with a terminal illness. Both of them learned just within a few days of the other that both were going to die. And he said, I went to their house upon learning that. And he said, I knocked on the door. The husband came to the door and greeted me. Hey, Mike, good to see you. Glad you came. He said, we went on in and we sat down and, you know, a little bit of small talk for a few minutes. And then he said there was a pause for about 30 to 45 seconds, which seemed like 30 to 45 minutes, because he said, I just did not know what to say to these people. And then the husband broke the silence. And he said, Mike, we know why you're here. And we appreciate your coming so much. But Mike, this is what we've been waiting for for a long time. This is what we've been waiting for. And that's the attitude of the child of God. When confronted with death, there is anticipation of what lies beyond because there's no reason to fear. And that anticipation is only, though, for those who've died in another way. You can only lose your fear of death by dying to sin. That's the only way to lose it. If you haven't died to sin, then you need to fear death. No question about it. Because what comes after death for those who have not died to sin is so horrific and so eternal, eternally horrific, that the finite man probably cannot comprehend fully that eternity in that situation. Think of that rich man in torment while Lazarus in paradise. But thanks be to God, we have been given the way to turn anxiety into anticipation where death is concerned. And that's by heeding what the New Testament teaches and what Paul writes about, for example, in Romans 6, verse 1, beginning, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then he goes on, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into 
Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that walk in newness of life is a walk toward the inevitable death that will occur to all of us unless the Lord comes again. But it is a walk of joy. It's a walk of peace. It is a walk of anticipation, not a walk of dread and terror. Very quickly... Another thing you'll miss by being a Christian is not just the cares of the world and the fear of death, but you're going to miss having your own way. Now somebody says, now you've really gone to meddling now. Because <laughs> now you have hit on something that uh, could be a problem. Uh, nobody in here would say that, surely. You'll miss having your own way. But if you're thinking straight, why would you want to have your own way when you can hear the words of the inspired prophet Jeremiah saying to you, O oh Lord, it is not in man. We know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man. It is not in man who lives to direct his steps. There's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs 16:25, but its end is the way of death. Read the Judges. Read the book of Judges and see how well that worked out when there was no king in Israel and everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. Absolute chaos. Absolute anarchy. No, we shouldn't mind missing having our own way when the way to which we are to submit is the way, the good way. The good way following the good Shepherd. One other quick note in conclusion about something you'll miss by being a Christian. You're going to miss hell. You'll miss hell completely. And I know there's no one who will mind missing hell. But by being a child of God, with everything that is involved in being a true child of God, hell, though it is a reality, is an unnecessary reality for you as a child of God. Now, if hell is not an unnecessary reality for you this morning because you know you have not become a Christian, then we plead with you to make it an unnecessary reality by obeying the gospel this morning or by coming home to your first love. You obey the gospel by believing, obviously, that Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to this earth, dwelt among men, shed his precious sinless blood, and rose from the grave to make your salvation possible. And you express that belief by repenting of every sin, by confessing his sweet name, and then by being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And when you do those things, you will rise to walk in that newness of life added to the church we read about in the New Testament. And as you continue that walk, you'll miss the things we've talked about this morning. But who cares? You surely don't. Because you'll gain. So much more, and the things you'll miss will be things you really shouldn't have been treasuring in the beginning. You need to come home to your first love in repentance and confession of sin that is public in nature. Then we plead with you to do that, and we'll pray with you and for you to a God who loves you supremely and who welcome you home eagerly with open arms, as it were. As we stand to sing, will you come? <laughs>